Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. The early 2000s were an exciting time to be online. It felt like a golden age of information gathering, as well as self-expression. The teens who felt alone could connect and talk via instant messenger or post on forums. Fans of bands could collectively share their appreciation of their favorite musician. It was a time when connecting with others had reached an entirely new and unfamiliar level. Almost as if it were an invigorating new adventure. The internet allowed you to be whomever you wanted. You could choose to be the idealized version of yourself, or even roleplay as your favorite character from a sci-fi novel. These endless opportunities are what made this time so fresh-feeling, so thrilling. This, however, also meant that the dangers to society, the predators, the harassers, and the overall malevolent, too, had a new place to convene. While the internet is often used as a place to interact with friends, it's also a place where the loneliest of people go. Many log on in hopes of finding answers to issues that are plaguing their lives. Others look for a stranger to merely listen to them vent. In the early 2000s, forums were frequently used, and unsurprisingly, there was a forum or a chat group for the most popular topics to the most esoteric niches. This is where Mark Drybrow from Coventry, England, enters the picture. In his youth, Mark had been an outgoing teenager, and his life was going well. He had friends, a girlfriend, and a typically happy life. He studied computer engineering in college, and everything seemed to be going according to plan. Much like most bad news, out of nowhere, he was hit with a viral infection that his girlfriend had as well. This was a turning point in Mark's life. He never felt as though he fully recovered, and neither his mind nor his body felt the same. This caused massive internal turmoil for him, as he no longer felt the motivation to do anything, and tragically, all that had brought him pleasure was suddenly no longer. His girlfriend left him, he no longer went to class, and then finally left the university entirely. It seemed as though all the joy had been so suddenly and abruptly sucked out of his life that he was left empty-handed. Understandably, Mark fell into a deep depression that halted everything in his life. The laughter, the excitement, the rush of endorphins he once could feel had completely vanished. For the next ten years, Mark was miserable and went through lows and lower lows. He lived alone in an inherited house, he struggled to take his medication, which then led to psychotic fits, and inevitably ended up feeling even worse than before even though that felt impossible. In the summer of 2005, on July 1st, Mark found his way to a website titled alt.suicide.methods. Under the username Spooky, Mark posted, Does anyone have details of hanging methods where there isn't access to anything high up to tie the rope to? I've read that people have taken their own lives in jail. Anybody know of inventive methods, the ones you don't get to read in the paper? A user named Lee Dow responded, telling Mark to check his email. Lee Dow's email gave a specific description of how to carry out suicide by hanging. The email described just what Mark was looking for. Lee said, quote, It is very effective. I have trialed it five times now with very good results, so I am using it for certain when I go. Unconsciousness occurred in about 10 to 15 seconds. If it does not occur, then you need more neck tension and try again. Unconsciousness is in 10 to 15 seconds or so. 
brain death in four minutes after unconsciousness and death in ten minutes. Hope this helps. Good luck. This detail of the description begs the question, who is Lee Dao? Why do they seem so knowledgeable on the topic, and why would they bother answering a stranger on the internet? Lee Dao claimed to be a young nurse in her 20s who was struggling with depression as well, hence why she was on the same website as Mark. She allegedly wanted to kill herself too due to a long period of depression she just couldn't see getting better. Though Lee Dao's message was informative, Mark had not yet decided on the exact method he wished to carry out his suicide with. In fact, days later on July 18th, Mark posted again, asking about drug overdose and whether that was a successful way to end his life. Once more, ready to pass on information, Lee Dao responded to him by saying that, as a veteran nurse, overdose was often too unpredictable, and a more surefire way was by hanging. It's important to note that in this message, Lee Dao asserted her position of power and knowledge in referring to herself as a veteran nurse, further supporting the hanging method. Though Lee Dao's already suspicious behavior kept peeking through in her responses to Mark, one message would shift the tone of this online interaction entirely. Lee Dao confided in Mark and told him that she had seen a friend commit suicide via webcam she described it as very peaceful and that she was pretty pleased she could make this guy's last moments special for him. As Mark was in a dark headspace and wasn't thinking rationally, but rather with his emotions as they were effectively plaguing him night and day, he did not pick up on the alarming nature of what Lee Dao had just admitted. No stable and well-intentioned human being could watch a suicide and feel peace and happiness. A stable person would likely be traumatized and beside themselves after seeing death before their own eyes, but not Lee Dao. Lee Dao eventually asked Mark if he had a set date for when he planned to kill himself because she wanted to commit suicide as well, but she would, quote, stay here for as long as possible. Though this was not an explicit way to ask to form a suicide pact, Lee Dao's verbiage did imply as much. On July 22nd, Lee Dao messaged Mark in order to check in and see how he was doing, hoping he was still alive. Mark responded, I'm still here. I've had a few days where I've been feeling very ill, physically and mentally. I'm not very good at thinking of things to say. It was good of you to write back. Thank you. I get scared when I'm about to do it. I don't want to lie to you. I keep holding on to the hope that things might change, caught between being suicidal and considering it. Same old story. I'm dying, but slowly, day by day. I don't want to waste anyone's time. If you want someone who's suicidal, I'm just not there yet. You either do it or you don't. And I don't, and haven't. I'm used to being alone. Sorry, I admire your courage. I wish I had it. On a positive note, it seemed as though Mark may truly have been considering postponing, if not even abandoning his plan to end his own life. However, the fact that he saw courage in the act of suicide did not bode well, as it further underlined how skewed his mindset had become due to his continuously worsening mental health. On July 26th, Mark's sister, Carol, had arranged to meet him at the park the next day. On the morning of the 27th, they reconfirmed that they had plans to see each other later. However, Mark never arrived. 
Carol drove to his house concerned. On the door, she found a note that read, Please call the police. Do not go upstairs. Go home. Hand this note to the police. Though the note was chilling, Carol ignored it and went inside. She found her brother, Mark, hanging from a rope attached to a ladder propped up by the door. Carol tried her best to hold him up in order to save him, but by the time the paramedics arrived, he was pronounced dead. Carol ended up looking through Mark's computer to see if she could find answers, but all she found was a message from Lee Dow that read, Are you all right, Mark? While so far the website alt.suicide.methods was seemingly entirely grim, morbid, and almost worthy of being deemed illegal, this site and others similar, like alt.suicide.holiday, known as ASH, were also places where people went for support from others, for motivation to keep going. Those websites were an internet variable of Schrodinger's cat. The facts still remain that it was dangerous for chat rooms or forums to be mixed in terms of their intention, because one logging in begging to find a reason to keep living might be met by someone exactly like Lee Dow. It's tragic to imagine someone reaching for a lifeline and instead being given a razor. In an unexpected turn of events entered Celia Blay, a 65-year-old woman who made whips for carriage horses. She wasn't exactly the type of person to be involved in such communities such as ASH. She somehow stumbled on ASH while doing research about roads in her village and how they should remain open to carriage horses. In a short time, Blay became familiar with the site and even made friends with some of the community. Blay entered into a conversation with a 17-year-old girl who had been sexually abused and was considered suicidal. Through conversation with Blay, who aimed to make the teen change her mind, or at least see some semblance of hope, one day the girl made a shocking admission. The teen told Blay she actually had entered a suicide pact with a nurse she'd met online. She told Blay that the nurse was seemingly very knowledgeable in terms of the ins and outs of ropes, knots, and effectively committing suicide by hanging. As the teen was from Central America, Blay wondered how a suicide pact would work. Would one travel to the other? The teen then clarified that it would be done via webcam. Luckily, Blay's efforts to keep the teen alive succeeded. At this point, Blay was aware she had stumbled into something larger than she initially thought, but truly she had no idea of the true magnitude of her discovery. There was something dark lingering within the recesses of these websites, like a spider catching prey in its web, but it was far from over. The spider had only just begun. While someone within the shadows of anonymity lurked, more and more people were lined up as targets. And while a vast majority of people would never allow themselves to be urged into something as severe as taking their own life, some were. And this unknown user would be looking for them. In 2008, a young university student named Nadja Kajuji embarked on a new adventure. She had been accepted to Carleton University in Ottawa, along with many other top-tier universities. She'd worked hard to get where she was, and with that came a sense of positivity that is hard to crush. After all, she had been one of out of only 100 people accepted into Carleton's public affairs and policy management program. 
She was truly living what seemed to be the dream, until she quickly fell in love and got pregnant. The news of a pregnancy was not well met. In fact, Nadja had taken the day after pill in order to avoid that exact result, but it was too late. As if she needed any extra stress, the man she had been in love with swiftly left her, and now she was to deal with her situation alone. What was she going to do in terms of schooling now? She knew she wasn't ready for a child. She knew this would affect the rest of her life, and that was what was most haunting. Whatever choice she made would be permanent and something she had to live with. These thoughts plagued Nadja's mind and pushed her into a deep depression as she felt as though she had problems with no solutions. The stress amounted to such an extreme that Nadja had a miscarriage. This tragic reality only worsened the depression she already felt as all choice had been taken from her. Nadja began to isolate herself from her peers, and as a star student, this was far from the norm for her. She struggled to attend her classes and naturally worried that she would not pass the semester. In an effort to work on herself and her issues, Nadja began seeing the university psychiatrist. However, on March 1st, 2008, Nadja Kajuji posted on one of the websites asking for a suicide method that would make her death ideally look like an accident. Nadja promptly received a response from a user named Cami. Cami claimed to be suicidal as well, and as she had knowledge as a nurse, thought hanging would still be the best method. Cami and Nadja had a rather extensive back and forth, as Nadja was insistent on jumping off a bridge into a mostly frozen river. Nadja was concerned of failing an attempt and then remaining mangled or causing her family more trouble. This was an opportunity Cammie made sure to jump on to reiterate the pros of hanging. Cammie truly relied on Nadja's feelings as she said things such as, I wish we both could die now while we are quietly in our homes tonight, with a smiley face. Cammie consistently underlined the fact that this was a team effort and that they were fully in it together, further encouraging Nadja to act. In fact, in their correspondence, Nadja stated, we are together in this, to which Cami replied, yes, I promise. However, Cami was very concerned that Nadja's method of jumping off the bridge would not work, and she insisted on a backup plan, just in case. As always, hanging was the method of choice, the only infallible way to escape misery. Cammie told Nadja, if you go to a Home Depot or Menards or any kind of home improvement store, get yellow nylon rope about 8 feet or about 3.5 meters and about one half inch thick or about 3 centimeters. That is all you need and look around your apartment for somewhere to hang from. I can help you with the cam when you need to. On March 9th, Nadja decided it was time to go with her plan of jumping off the bridge. Before leaving to kill herself, she emailed a roommate and told her she was going ice skating. Her body was found six weeks later, wearing the skates still. It is unclear whether the cause of death was drowning or hypothermia. Once more, there seemed to be no repercussions for Cammie. 
On the sights, Lee Dao maintained a rather silent and somewhat invisible presence. As with Mark, Lee Dao did not comment much publicly, but rather told posters to check their email. This made her far harder to trace, and members like Blay couldn't truly gauge the intentions of Lee Dao, who consistently kept mentioning she was a 20-something nurse from Minnesota. The posts Lee Dao commented under were always the ones in the most rush end of their lives. She specially aimed to find the most desperate and naive. For reasons unknown, in 2006, Lee Dao disappeared from the site. All those who corresponded with her came to the same morbid conclusion. She must have finally killed herself. Needless to say, many had formed a bond with Lee Dao, seeing her as a friend or at least someone who cared for them in a genuine way. However, Lee Dao did not stay away for long. Those who had been speaking with her had begun to speak to each other, and her stories did not line up. In private messages, Lee Dao was still trying to convince some to kill themselves, and when others wanted to speak with her on the phone, there was always a reason why she couldn't. Something was not adding up, and her own supposed friends were beginning to get answers. This is when the users who interacted with her began to think she was getting high off the suicides of others, or that it at least provided somewhat of a thrill to be the cyber angel of death. The main recurring factor that outed Lee Dao was that she continued to make suicide packs, but somehow it was the other parties who suddenly became inactive or disappeared. She constantly re-emerged. Celia Blay continued to monitor the situation and tried to make as many people as possible aware of Lee Dao and her strategies, but it was impossible to know how many emails or private messages were being sent and to whom. In fact, Celia Blay truly tried her very best to stop Lee Dao from getting vulnerable people to kill themselves. She took all the evidence she'd gathered to the police and showed them the conversations that were ending lives. Unfortunately, the police did not take the matter as seriously as they should have. Nonetheless, Blay continued to monitor the ASH and alt.suicide.methods. methods. In fact, in 2007, Blay found herself a partner in tracing Lee Dow, a 35-year-old woman named Kat Lowe from Wolverhampton, England. Lowe was personally invested in outing Lee Dow, as a friend of hers had almost committed suicide after entering into the now formulaic suicide pact with Lee. Lowe decided to go undercover in order to extract as much information as possible in terms of who Lee Dow really was and why they consistently encouraged suicide as well as instructed it. Lowe posted, emitting the vibe of someone who had had enough, or was close enough to the ledge that a slight nudge might suffice. In 2008, Lowe sent an email to a user named Falcon Girl. She asked for a good place to swing. Using the Falcon Girl account, someone named Cammy D told Lowe about the best method to effectively hang oneself. Cammy added, I think you said you have a webcam. That would help a lot, too. In none of their exchange did Cammy try to persuade Lowe to rethink her suicidal thoughts. In fact, it seemed as if she always were prepared to tell people how exactly to kill themselves. 
Cammie consistently checked on Low to see if she was ready. However, her persistence gave her away. Cammie signed off the same way Lee Dow did, by saying, Hugs. At this point, Blay believed that this Lee Dow character had convinced over 50 people to kill themselves. Lowe and Blay continued to monitor the situation, documenting everything they could find. Lowe continued to interact with Cammie, and in what would turn out to be one of the biggest leads in the case, Cammie told Lowe she knew of four people who hanged themselves. Upon further questioning, Lowe asked if Cammie had seen anyone do it, and Cammie replied, No, just one. He asked me to watch as he was all alone. I didn't want to think it was some perverted ploy of his, but after many hours of talking, I agreed and watched him die, so he would not die alone. Lowe asked how old the man was. He was 32, just like Mark Drybrow. This was a massive development, as now, Cammie and Lee Dow were directly connected. Lowe and Blay continued to work in order to get Cammie's trust. Lowe said she was ready to hang herself, but she needed help with what type of rope was needed. She insisted that Cammie get a webcam so they could see and hear each other. That's when Lowe found out that Lee Dow, Cammie, and Falcon Girl were all the same person and namely a man who definitely was not in his 20s. Lowe asked why he had pretended to be a woman, and he responded, mostly because if and only if there were any legal consequences for my helping anyone, they would come looking for a girl. Blay then took his information to another ASH user, Griffin, who had worked in telecommunications. Within days, Griffin connected Falcon Girls and Lee Dow's emails to a server in Faribault, Minnesota. In their continued correspondence, Cammie made a mistake that would cost them. The header of their email contained a name. Bill Melkert Dinkle. Through a wild moment of luck, Blay, while talking with a customer, found out they lived near Faribault and was friends with the deputy sheriff in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, Faribault ended up being outside of his jurisdiction and instead suggested to contact the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. Blay did so and managed to get in touch with Sergeant William Hyder, part of the St. Paul Police Task Force. Suddenly, things were moving quickly, as just the next day, the Ottawa police called the Faribault police asking about Melkert Dinkle. They had called in reference to the disappearance of Nadia, whom they at the time did not know was dead. Their concern with Melkert Dinkle was that they believed someone who lived at his residence had committed a suicide pact with Nadia and might act on it. Ironically, at the time this occurred, Melkert Dinkle was on a family vacation. However, now Melkert Dinkle was on the map, and a family vacation would not shield him from the incoming investigation. Who even was Melkert Dinkle? Why did he have so much time on his hands, especially time dedicated to convincing young people to kill themselves? Ironically, he was a resident nurse, who was also married to a nurse, and they had two daughters. Melkert Dinkle's bizarre practices had begun long before he had created his online personas. In fact, 
he had gotten in trouble with the nursing board of Minnesota a few times. Once in 1994, where he simply did not inform the medical authorities that a resident's condition was severely worsening, resulting in the patient's death. He was constantly moved to different units as he never performed well at his current post. He was later diagnosed with a learning disability and attention deficit disorder. However, he was put on medication. Though he showed no true ability in his nursing career, he continued in the field, where he went from job to job as he inevitably made errors, some that might explain his behaviors online. In fact, in one nursing home he had worked at, he was fired for allegedly abusing two residents. This caused his license to be limited, though it deserved suspension. This negative employment history did not bode well, but it wasn't until Nadja's body was found, six weeks after her disappearance, when the river warmed and her body washed up, that he truly felt the consequences of his actions. There seemed to be a surreal disconnect in Melkert Dinkel's head. He immediately told the police the truth, mostly. When the police interviewed him, he was surprisingly direct. Sergeant Hyder asked Melkert Dinkel about his online interactions, and he immediately removed his wife from the equation, and also admitted he'd used the pseudonyms Lee Dow, Falcon Girl, and Cammy. He was clear when he said he advised people online about suicide methods. However, interestingly, he never admitted to watching any suicide via webcam. Not even Mark Drybrows. The police, however, did find that he had made multiple suicide packs, around a dozen, though he could only confirm of five that effectively did end up taking their lives. In an interesting juxtaposition, Melkert Dinkel admitted that he enjoyed the thrill of the chase, but he also claimed to tell his victims that they'd be better off in heaven. Nonetheless, these two contrasting sentiments cannot exist simultaneously when one is an admission of a semi-fetish for death. The pseudo-benevolent nature of claiming his victims would be better in heaven seems like an easy line to say, but a hard one to back up. While morally this case is as open and shut as it can be, what does the law say? Is this a question of free speech and personal accountability? Can Nadja's death be truly connected to Melker Dinkel, as she did not end up using his hanging strategy at the end after all? These questions plagued the families of Mark and Nadja, as for them and most others, Melker Dinkel was the drop that made the glass overflow. Had there been a blay or a low at the time, perhaps the discussions would have led to healthy solutions. Legally, the battles were messy, as might be expected in cases that involve not only free speech, but intention, as well as the internet. In 2011, Melkert Dinkel was charged with advising, encouraging, or assisting Kajuji and Drybrow in killing themselves using internet correspondence. As the case was underway, he was ordered to stay offline. Additionally, Minnesota provides penalties for those who encourage or assist in suicide. The punishment can be up to over a decade in prison on top of a $30,000 fine. Melkert Dinkel received a meager 
360 days in jail, just under one year. However, in 2012, the Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction, which led to the Supreme Court's review of the case. In 2014, the Supreme Court reversed the conviction and remanded. Apparently, Melkert Dinkel's conviction was not entirely constitutional, as advising and encouraging suicide was protected by the First Amendment. However, speech that assisted suicide was not protected. In the end, Rice County District Judge Thomas Newville sentenced William Melkert Dinkel to three years in prison, but suspended the sentence to 360 days in jail, along with the abiding by the terms of his probation for 10 years. Melkert Dinkel was convicted of assisting the suicide of Mark Drybrow and attempting to assist the suicide of Nadja Kajuji. Melkert Dinkel has said, quote, I am sorry for my actions and what I have done. I have repented. Even though he has been released from jail for five years now, his lawyer continues to appeal the conviction. This entire case is an accurate reflector of how everything on the internet is permanent, yet in some ways fleeting. If Mark had not crossed paths with Lee Dow at that very moment, or if Nadja hadn't corresponded with Cammy at that very time. This case only exemplifies that while everything that happens on the internet is permanent in some ways, in others the timing is pivotal. The pure coincidence of being on a website at the same time as a stranger in and of itself can feel surreal, let alone when the stranger is prepared to do the unthinkable. The most haunting part of this case is that Melkert Dinkel, with his knowledge, along with his wife's, could have been actively saving lives. He could have been one of the families thanked when their children survived the darkest days of their lives. Yet he chose to be worse, a grim reaper who cannot even face his own actions. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.